Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the TALIS Group. Thanks for joining us again for Defense 2020, and we're going to continue the conversation today with our Democratic experts looking at the range of issues that are facing the party as it looks ahead to this primary season, the general election season, and and the possibility of governing in 2021. Let's turn now to a debate that we've seen written about over what one author, Van Jackson, has called military sufficiency as a rule of thumb rather than military supremacy. And this is in a description of what a progressive U.S. military or defense approach would be. Um, I mentioned the Chicago Council in our last episode as a great source of polling, and there's a poll that they've had out in 2019 that 70% of Americans that they surveyed see maintaining U.S. military superiority as making the United States safer. I think one of the key questions Democrats are facing is what constitutes superiority, what constitutes sufficiency, and what do these terms even really mean uh, when you're trying to design a a defense policy or strategy. And Kelly, I'm going to put you in the hot seat yeah. on that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think this debate is really interesting, but I but I actually think the context is really going to matter. You know, if you have a new administration under a Democratic president, we're going to be confronting a very different world after Trump. And I think we need to acknowledge that we're in a completely different universe. There are going to be a lot of nervous allies. There's going to be a lot of massive distrust of American intentions, strategic or otherwise. That's going to make a new, new administration's defense strategy even harder to implement. So, on the question of you know military sufficiency versus superiority, I actually think you know there's this there's a tension between this idea that we have to be out there reassuring allies with presence operations and capabilities, investments, and engagements and exercises. There's going to be that kind of stream. Then there's going to be the oh, we should only do things that are about lethality. And there's a trade-off between reassurance and lethality and sufficiency and deterrence. I mean, and I think the context is going to matter. I think we need to be realistic. And I think many Democrats are realistic that we're going to live in a world where, you know, our military power is going to be contested. It's going to be contested in the Pacific. It's going to be contested in Europe. Uh, It's already being contested in both places. And I think that we need to basically reevaluate what we think of in terms of you know, what is a successful deterrent strategy in both theaters. Yeah. And Adam, you've actually written quite a bit in this general area. I'd love to get your thoughts on sort of how we should think about the nesting of the defense policy and strategy and military in that larger toolkit of national security and, and what's enough. Yeah, I think that's the crucial question. I think there are two major trends happening at the same time. One is the military And uh, many civilian military analysts are coming to recognize that we cannot fight wars the same way that we 
planned to in the past. It's not going to work effectively. Rapidly advancing Chinese, North Korean, Russian missile arsenals are just going to make it very difficult for the United States to flow forces into a region, marshal, and then to apply it to con a conflict in time to have a decisive effect. And so you've seen, for example, the Marine Corps Commandant release some thinking that's very, very thoughtful, very uh, considered about how to meet this challenge. The other thing that's happening is uh, the United States is spending 55% of every discretionary dollar on defense spending. And if you think about it, there, there's really no way that the United States has had over the past several decades to, certainly since the end of the Cold War, to evaluate different kinds of priorities. How much is enough? How much should we be spending on defense as a society? And so as you see the Democratic primary raise issues of healthcare, inequality, uh, poverty and homelessness, these require money. Medicare for all requires a huge amount of money. And there's got to be some real questions about how much should we spend on defense spending? Uh, how much is too much? There has to be some number that's too much. And so the critical thing is these two debates have to go hand in hand. You can't just have a list of cuts for what you want to cut. It, it needs to be married to a strategy uh, to help meet our crucial deterrence commitments. The military is still hooked on this idea of dominance in all domains. So that means sort of preserving the ability to fight and win, sometimes very close to adversaries' borders, you know, to sort of do so, to achieve air dominance and then to sort of fight on their own terms. They're sort of hooked on this strategy that's frankly outdated and totally implausible, buying a whole generation of things to sort of replicate the military so that it looks like it did in the past. A new generation of aircraft carriers, large surface combatants, um, marine dock ships and sort of expeditionary forces, you know, penetrating stealth fighters that we think sort of are, are don't have the range or can't generate the sortie rate to really make a difference in uh, conflicts over the South China Sea, uh, for example, or in other theaters, maybe over the Baltics. The two debates have to be had at the same time. How can we rely more on allies to defend themselves? Because allies are increasingly capable, by the way. And how can we sort of shift our procurement priorities so that we're taking advantage of these capabilities that are very, very good at denying access and defending territory rather than trying to overcome those capabilities by spending more and more and more? It's critical to have the two debates together. And, and that's frankly where Democrats need to go. Andrew, he set that up so beautifully for your, your expertise <laughs> yeah. on modernization and capability. So uh, welcome your thoughts. Yeah, well, it's, you know, sufficiency, I find utility in that term, but I also find that it's hard for me to address it analytically because it's very qualitative. And so from my perspective, I could look and say, well, if I believe that superiority is necessary to achieve mission outcome, then, then superiority is what's sufficient to achieve the mission objective. So I'm not sure I can fully carefully distinguish between like a concept of superiority and a concept of sufficiency. Uh, I do agree, actually, I have long frankly, felt that our discussion about supremacy and dominance is um, wildly fantastical. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're never going to achieve supremacy in all, in all regimes and all domains. And even if we have been dominant, it hasn't always allowed us to achieve our objective. So uh, personally, I, I, I welcome us moving away from use of those terms as somehow ways in which we think about sizing the defense budget or, or developing capabilities. 
but I'm not sure I've, we've necessarily hit on something that can fully replace it. In the modernization context, I can't think of how, I, how it would help me design a system to think I want the system to be sufficient rather than dominant. Uh, I, I think it's, of course, that rolls much more up into the concept operations than it does into the equipment. And concepts of operations don't always lend themselves to an easy understanding of how do I change the budget then. That's my concept of operations, although you can obviously you know, accept or reject different systems based on whether they play in that concept uh, or not. So I think we're still kind of struggling to come up with a way of talking about what kind of systems will work best in future conflict. I definitely think that, you know, when we look at some of the what I think of as more far-fetched ideas that seem to recur over time. You know, we're going to have space lasers that can shoot down, you know, anything anywhere on the planet, and then we'll have dominance, and then we won't have any problems. Uh, you know, I think a move away from our ability to argue against those approaches is useful. Honestly, the the biggest way in which we've been able to address those concerns historically is just on cost, on budget. Uh, you know, when the, when the Republican Revolution came in in 1994 and they had their contract with America, 10 bills, the one that didn't make it was the national security one. And it failed because they wanted space-based missile defenses. And the cost, according to the CBO, of that was $60 billion, which doesn't seem like a shocking number now, but was a shocking number <laughs> at that time. Uh, and it, and And they couldn't pass it. What's so interesting to me about that conversation you all just had is the tension between the desire that Democrats have for supporting allies, for demonstrating it's a force for good in the world, if you will. I'm, I'm, these are probably caricatures, but you hear a lot of that kind of framing, re particularly if it's a post-Trump administration, thinking through how to establish you know, the values uh, piece seems to be important in everything you all have said. So how do you balance then what it is the allies value and the role of the military in that. And I would you know, hazard a guess that that includes arms sales, security cooperation agreements, exercises, presence of U.S. forces, probably some amount of conventional 20th century style or even early 21st century style weaponry against the picture you're painting of how different the way of war may be in this next century. You hit the nail on the head, Kath. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, <laughs> we're done. Thank you for, <laughs> no, Thank you for playing. Ahead. No, I mean, I think you. I think that's exactly right. There is going to be a impulse in a new administration to do a big kind of showing of reassurance to all of our allies and partners around the world, and that is going to be at tension with a restraint approach on the defense side. So I think they're going to have they're going to be some really early decision making trade offs that are going to happen um, with a new team. I also think, though, getting to, to something you raised earlier, you know, thinking about how we compete with China or Russia, more importantly, China, I think, is I think Democrats have a broader view of that competition. Um, and I think that part of that is going to be the economic piece of that. And that's going to be way more about the investments we're making in infrastructure at home and research and development and education and things like that. And I think the military tool set is going to become increasingly actually less useful in the context of competition. I, I'm not, I know that's a controversial <laughs> statement. I'm sure I'll get lots of emails about that. Um, but I do think that at the end of the day, the competition we're really going to have to be most effective is going to be the economic side. And so thinking about competition and where the military piece lands in that I think is important. 
And back to operational concepts because I'm like obsessed with this idea. I know you I are too, too, Kath. Yes. Like our yeah, we need it. We need new operational concepts. <laughs> bottom line, and I think part of that is going to be how do we create strategic dilemmas for our adversaries so that they don't take the steps either in a gray zone space or otherwise, or maybe pushing back against an ally of ours in the first place. So like, how do we create that dilemma for Beijing to make that decision? Oh, should I, you know, build that island in the South China Sea because something else might happen to me on, you know, trade or I might lose a partnership here or there. I think we need to be thinking differently. And that is also important in the non-military context as well. So I think all of this is, that was a long-winded way of saying that I think we need to completely reevaluate it. I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, trade-offs, I think, early on about some of these decisions. This is an area where I think Van Jackson's sort of principle of military sufficiency is really helpful. I think you're right. It's not a force-sizing construct. It's deeply ambiguous. But I think what it was, Van Jackson, for just to clarify, um, proposed this sort of standard or concept in a Texas National Security Review Roundtable on a progressive foreign policy. I, I think it's helpful because it tries to transition us away from fighting and winning everywhere, from meeting every mission, everything that the military can possibly do, uh, toward a concept that picks and chooses specific missions that we need the military to meet. We need the military to be able to shorten a conflict with North Korea, prevent them from carrying out mass casualty attacks on the South. Um, we need to prevent the Russians from taking the Baltics. You know, th There are a handful of sort of critical missions. Rather than structure our forces for what could they potentially do that is beneficial to America, you know, perfect security to defend against any ballistic missile that's fired anywhere in the world, countering or sort of preventing any kind of gray zone aggression or operation may not be a feasible objective. Part of what it means to say that we might not win the next war is that we sort of can't be engaged and, and we can't sort of put American credibility and American forces on the line for every possible objective. So we need to think seriously about what are our objectives in, in the Pacific, for example. They're relatively limited. How As, would you define those? For, just to follow through on the example or a few of those. Uh, yeah. Well, it's a tough conversation because you want to defend South Korea against North Korean aggression. You don't want territorial encroachment into core South Korean or, or Japanese interests. But the South China Sea, for example, it's a lost cause. That ship sailed. Um, there's no amount of military force that, or sort of commitment or threats that the United States can make to roll back Chinese island building activities. Uh, I think we just need to be realistic about that. So what military sufficiency sort of helps us do is to say, what are the forces that are required to defend these core interests rather than all the nice-to-haves in terms of dominance or supremacy or superiority that wouldn't necessarily help us accomplish our core objectives? And, and so to sort of really reevaluate re the role of the American military in the world, what it can accomplish and, and what it never will be able to without any additional funding. Just picking up on that, I mean, I think, again, I think Adam's right. You know, it's about what we're actually trying to achieve. <laughs> so, you know, is the goal in the Pacific, for example, to have complete military superiority or not? Is it to be completely economically dominant or not? In my view, our goal in the Asia Pacific should be, and or Indo-Asia Pacific now, which is on trend, um, should be ensuring that 
all countries have the ability to make their own security and economic decisions. And that's a very different objective. And so aligning a military instrument to that objective looks very different than, you know, dominating and, you know, surrounding China with you know, lots of bases and access agreements and things like that. But you want to make sure that the countries in the region feel that they have a choice and that they can make that choice free of coercion. Yeah, I actually think this um, connection, if you will, between economic and military uh, objectives and, and power may help us understand better or clarify what we're trying to achieve. Because, for example, if we were to say our goal with China economically is to completely uh, defeat them, you know, that's absurd, first of all, in terms of achieving it. Secondly, it wouldn't even be in U.S. interest, right? If there are a billion and a half Chinese people living in desperate poverty, that would not in any way enhance the United States' economic position in the world or help us. So, you know, it's much easier to then come back and say, so actually, an economically prosperous China is in U.S. interests, but it's as long as it's Just not one that's- Just to be clear for the listener, because it's a market, is that your point? Yeah, because it's a market and because it them having some degree of economic prosperity- you know, forestalls lots of things like refugee crises and other things that would that would not be in U.S. interests. Uh, but what we don't want is for them to dominate uh, the economic structure of world trade and to impose uh, disadvantageous terms of trade on their neighbors and or any other part of the world to set the rules of world economic activity in a way that disadvantages either us uh, or any other nation uh, in a significant way. So, you know, I think we can articulate a set of pretty clear interests and the economic space. And I think those do largely align, and hopefully, if we're being clever, almost fully align with related national security interests um, about China, again, not imposing its will militarily on its neighbors uh, or other parts of the world as well. So I think we can kind of start to work towards a definition of U.S. national interests, both economic and national security, which can help us figure out how do we then uh, act with our national power, of which military is one component, to achieve those objectives. So, Andrew, I'm, I'm going to stick with you for a moment as we shift to budget, because budget obviously is already implicit in much we've talked about. But FY 2020, we have a $738 billion defense budget. That's the base budget, not including overseas contingency accounts, as I recall. And you have, in general, support on Capitol Hill from Democrats, in general, as I said, to keep roughly where we are. And among the American public, the polling looks you know, about right. Gallup's latest polling in 2019 says 25% of Americans say spending's too low, 29% say too high. In the Goldilocks scenario, 43% say it is just fine. So, you know, you're, we, we could keep just trucking along, if you will. Um, and yet there is this um, significant conversation to the extent that there's any conversation happening in the Democratic primaries on defense. It is around spending. And so, for instance, I have a quote here from Elizabeth Warren. How do we responsibly cut back? We can start by ending the stranglehold of defense contractors on our military policy. It's clear that that the Pentagon is captured by the so-called Big Five defense contractors and taxpayers are picking up the bill. If in general, Democrats, you know, definitely don't want to go up in defense spending, at least want to maintain or possibly go down, what what are those? Is she right? Are, is that the place we go? Are there other areas we should be looking at in order to constrain defense spending while achieving these goals we've all just talked about? Yeah. And again, I think, you know, the statement is carefully crafted to appeal to something that is some level of consensus, which is, uh, you know, big defense companies 
maybe aren't the most popular things in the world with Democrats broadly, uh, you know, but it gets really complicated as soon as you dip even just one level below, right? So, uh, you know, Democrats from Washington State sort of think fondly about the Boeing company. Uh, maybe they would be less concerned about one of the other big five companies that isn't so present in their state. But then you go to Democrats in Texas and they actually think Lockheed Martin's a pretty good company, but they're not so sure about the rest of them. So, uh, you know, I think you, it, the consensus there, to the extent there is any, breaks down almost instantaneously when you move off of that uh, very high level talking point. Uh, and, and the same is true in the budget. Uh, you know, if you focus on the big five companies, you're really talking largely about the procurement and R&D budgets because that's where they get the vast majority uh, of their revenues. And then because they're building your point because they're, they're building, building capital. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, that's, you know, uh, it's a it's an important and, and not insignificant part of the budget. It's a large part of the budget. But the budget is much, much, much bigger uh, than what we're spending on modernization and R&D. So, you know, if one truly wants to go after the major cost drivers within the budget, you've got to think more broadly than that. One of the things that came out of the very much maligned effort in the Obama administration in the wake of sequestration to think strategically about how we might make choices and cut the budget uh, was two things. One is uh, force structure drives a huge amount of what goes in, you know, what, where the money in the budget goes. And that's true even on the equipment side, because much of what we buy is simply to equip these forces that we've decided so, to- So just to break that down, yeah. force structure in this case equaling end strength, so number of personnel plus the the equipment that they have to use. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the sorts of formations that yes. they're organized into, brigade combat teams and fighter squadrons uh, and those things. So- you really have to affect those things in order to change substantially the budget picture. The second thing coming out of that is it doesn't happen overnight. That in fact, usually if you want to make reductions to the budget, it may cost you in the near term in order to get savings uh, in the long term, which is one which was the major reason why that effort essentially was completely ignored as soon as it was before the ink was dry was because we didn't have the time. Sequestration was in effect. And we couldn't make strategic choices to cut things because we needed the money right away. And so we had to do very unstrategic things uh, to get that. But I think the new administration is going to have is going to have to wrestle with these questions uh, and figure out if fundamentally, if we want to change the scale of the defense budget, that will mean taking on force structure. Kelly, uh, <laughs> in addition to structure, which is again people, just to be clear, are a big piece of that who are employed, and also installations which exist in districts and um, health benefits. All these are really hard areas to go after. Um, how do you think about getting at the defense budget? Yeah, they are. Um, it's very difficult, and I think there are you know very significant fixed costs on personnel that are. Increasing and not decreasing are going to increase over time. That's our biggest cost in the in the defense budget is personnel. Um, so I do think looking at you know end strength and force structure is really important. And I you know I happen to believe, for example, that the army is far too big. <laughs> I think there are a lot of people who believe that as well. Um, so I think there are going to be some decisions about what we want the military to look like that are going to drive cost. What we want the military to be able to do, which I think is the most important question that Democrats face, which will drive the budget. So, for example, you know, the military was, you know, very engaged in the the Ebola response. I would like remember, you know, back in the administration, that, and it was because they had the capacity to get it on the ground and, you know, set up and, you know, run the effort. And so, 
do we want our military to be able to do those kinds of missions? Well, that requires, in some cases, you know, capabilities. Um, it requires presence in, in in many places. So, I think you know, starting with first and foremost, with what we actually want the military to do is going to be the most important question. And also, I think you know, I do think there is a desire among Democrats to get to a more sustainable defense spending level. Um, now, what that looks like if it's you know. We're at three point four percent right now. Um, so could we get to a three percent, you know, rate? And I know percentage is not a, a useful measure sometimes, but I do think getting to a more sustainable level, you know, over time that's also predictable uh, for the Pentagon to plan around. I think are going to be kind of the two most important elements of of the budget approach. The argument about about corrupt any corruption about uh, efficiencies and waste that's the e- easy argument to have. And it's an absolutely, as far as I'm concerned, ironclad argument. You mentioned that Americans tend to like defense contractors where they live. I think the more Americans knew about just how much waste there is, just how much outrageous overcharging there is. You know, over the last couple of weeks, there have been there was a Yahoo News report that diagrammed just the sheer quantity of regular, consistent overcharging and fraud amongst def- defense contractors, I think the American people would be inferior, infuriated if they knew more about that. So if a Democrat wanted to raise that issue, I, I think it could gain a lot of traction. Right? Will defense spending be a major issue in the, in the campaign? Elizabeth Warren wrote in Foreign Affairs and made this claim in a couple of speeches that we need to take out a sharp knife and make some cuts. If she puts forward a plan to do that, I think it could become a major issue. But otherwise, it's likely to sort of get lost in the shuffle. But the critical thing is waste, fraud, anti-corruption, that's the easy answer. We should get serious about it. It takes a lot more leverage. It takes a lot more political will. It'll be a huge fight to sort of cut fat within the defense budget that, frankly, the Pentagon identified but hasn't been forced to cut. The really hard question as Kelly and Kath say is about force structure. It's incredibly difficult to save large amounts of money or, or sort of significant percentages of defense spending without seriously downsizing the force. And this is why it has to be coupled with a new concept of operational concepts and strategic objectives. And so it's not just a cuts list. It's not just a list of planes that you think don't work quite well enough or you're worried about the aircraft carrier catapult. You need some theory about how what are the objectives that's crucial for the United States military and how we can meet them with less. I think that there's an available argument there. It, it's just got to be articulated. Let's do a quick round on areas we should be investing. So I think there's tends to be a lot of skepticism that Democrats are thinking, if you will, in this space. So I'd love to hear you three talk about where the U.S. should be investing its defense dollars. And I can start uh, maybe with Kelly, if that's okay. I'll just oh, go around. Okay. You know, for me, it comes down to human capital, actually. <laughs> um, I think that the investments we need to be making for an effective force are in our people. And we have a very, as you know, Kath, from, from experience in the Pentagon, a very sclerotic uh, system when it comes to recruiting, for example, civilians into the defense architecture. Um, obviously, our our military recruitment structure is sclerotic as well. Um, you know, we don't invest in the training and education. I mean, the military does a decent job at it, but like on the civilian side, we're not that great. We've been cutting, you know, on the civilian side for quite some time. We've got a lot of brain drain, uh, especially in the current 
uh, administration of very senior and effective uh, defense civilians leaving the Pentagon because the military is essentially taking over in many ways. Um, so I, for me, it comes down to just first and foremost is going to be the human capital piece. I'm going to agree with that. Uh, maybe cutting against type here as the uh, you know person who focuses on modernization, but but it just expand the frame a little bit. So I would also say we need to think about what is the human capital we want industry to have uh, as well. And you know, I actually would welcome a dialogue of let's look at where the money in industry goes and how it's used, and is that what we want? At, at the end of the day, there are capabilities that we need that industry will be required to produce, and how industry charges the government for those absolutely merits very close examination. But you also have to look at the big picture, uh, which is a lot of these companies work, do most of their work in defense and their margins and things are public. And they're not out, you know, setting bonfires of cash in front of corporate headquarters because they've just ripped it all that off from the government. Uh, now, there are cases, many cases where they have overcharge. There are other cases where the rules of the game put them at a little bit of a disadvantage. And the government has very strong rules in the defense space that they have to report costs, you know, down to the fraction of a penny. And so, there's a lot of information out there about where the money's going. Where do we want it to go? Uh, I think we do need an investment in engineers in the kind of capability it's going to take to make sure that as AI capabilities develop and are used in military conflict, we can control that. We can use it in the ways we want to use it, not have it spiral out of our ability to control either our use or the use of others. Uh, so I think there's, I would agree that it really, but it is about people. You know, there's this sense that, well, if we can invest in a weapon system, it's going to solve that problem in the future. It's not. It never has. But if we can invest in people and having kind of that engineering ecosystem that can apply uh, new capabilities where they're required for our national security, that's where we want to be. Yeah, that's absolutely right. People is the clear answer, both in terms of experts and strategists that are sort of capable of, uh, and, and engineers that are capable of grasping new technological trends, but also qualified people to run, for example, procurement programs that really have the uh, background to sort of understand what they're dealing with and and really execute administration's uh, objectives. But just to sort of supplement with an answer about force structure, I think the area where you want to prioritize is the high-end capabilities that supplement allied forces and their ability to defend themselves. And that means coming to grips with the fact that an armored brigade combat team may not be able to get from CONUS to the Baltics in time to sort of confront the Russians coming over the border. But there's a, a lot that we can do to enhance those militaries. So it goes back to operational concepts enhancing and strengthening and enabling allied forces around the world that are actually on the front lines of many of these conflicts. Fascinating to episode tour de force we have here from Kelly Maximum, Andrew Hunter, and um, Adam Mount. Thank you all for joining me. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.